Hello and welcome to this episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin. I'm Kristen. And I'm Erin. So Erin, we wanted to talk about an experience you had with publishing. So we're doing a bunch of kind of behind the scenes sort of things to do with publishing. We talked about editor author relationships and agent editor relation agent author relationships, and we're having a publicist come on later this year. And Erin uh, and I also had a kind of a scary publishing experience in this last year, where the imprint that bought our book, the editor that bought our book, our imprint closed. So Erin, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so when I tell the story, I want to make sure that everyone knows that I'm not like complaining or like saying like these people are bad for whatever happened. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say what happened. But uh, the way it started is I, I guess I kind of felt like the wheels were getting wobbly on some things because it was taking a long time for my editor to get back to me on some things. And they had editors move from house to house all the time, especially if they want more experience in certain areas. And they recently, I would say lot, uh, an editor had moved on, but they hadn't replaced her. And so things were getting slowed. So like I said, I felt like something was getting kind of weird, but it was also COVID. And so it was all crazy. And one day I got an email and it was just said, just so you know, um, it's going to, it's about to hit the Twitter verse. Uh, it's been leaked. Imprint is closing. And so, and it'll be effective in like, the December 1st. And it was like the end of October. And it was like, uh, sorry about this. Uh, more information is coming. And I was like, oh, well, um, okay. And so, you know, it shortly exploded on Twitter. And then my head editor reached out to me. She was like, I'm really sorry that it had to be this way. We're sorry that the, that the announcement came so quickly, but we didn't want you to be blindsided by Twitter stuff. So that I did appreciate that, that it wasn't like a, you hear it from somebody else that your marriage is ending. <laughs> You know? <laughs> and um, so uh, they, but the, she was very French. She's like, we, you will be taken care of. You know, you you have contracts. Those contracts will be honored. You're just going to have to find you a new home and a new editor, and we'll get back to you when uh, when we can. And then it was we just spent the next. I spent the next few weeks just watching them. The news hit everybody, and it was so. I felt so bad for all the people that I'd worked so hard with over the years and all the agents that were so sad to see them go. And, um, but I, I was there from a place of security. I didn't have a, I had a book that was in editing stage, but not like in a publishing, like a certain place where I, stuff had to be done on a timeline. I was able to just delay everything a full year and not have too many hitches, but there was just a long time where I just sat there in limbo waiting for somebody to tell me, um, hello, I'm your new editor and uh, I haven't read your book, but I will. And I'll get back to you in three or four more weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now we're in developmental edits again, and it's going a little bit slow. I think he's a little overloaded, but you know, uh, we have a good rapport. I've talked to him, the new editor a few times. I've moved over to FSG within Macmillan, but, and now I'm just waiting. Yeah. So how have you coped with being with a new editor? Because I feel like that's something that authors get really scared about because it's hard enough to just like be on submission and to have people reading your work, but to have somebody who didn't even acquire your work suddenly have it and be like, and now I'm your editor. How does that, how are you coping with that? Well, 
at Imprint, I started out with uh, Rhoda Beleza as my editor. She wrote Blood of a Thousand Suns and Empress of a Thousand Skies or something like that. She's really great. And then she left and moved on. And I was given to her assistant, who later I found out was actually the one who pulled me out of the slush and took me to the head editor and said, you should buy this book. So she was kind of like behind the scenes on that. So that was a new editor situation, but it was in-house and somebody who, who already knew and loved my project. So it wasn't much of a, a transition. And then Nicole moved on to, to another job so that she could get more experience. And I was handed to uh, John, who was wonderful, but John didn't know anything about my books at all. He hadn't read any of them. It's not a criticism. It's just that, you know, they only have limited time to work is. on stuff. Yeah. So, um, but he was very enthusiastic. He was very kind and he was, and he really liked the storyline. He was like, he was excited about it. So that was fun. But then moving to the new house was a little was a little bit more because at least like with John, everybody else knew in the office kind of knew me of me at least. Um, but I was totally new at FSG. But I've also had the weird experience of I'm living in Korea right now. So I am so far out of what's happening in the U.S. in general. I usually wake up to things that have been happening for 12 hours. So I was, I've been separated from all this in general and hardly talking to anybody as it is. So I, maybe that made it easier and there's just so much going on here. And then, pro, you know, with the pandemic going on too, it was like, there's so many other things to worry about that in my case, what helped me cope was that like, it's like, I know they're going to take care of me. They said that they have contracts. It's just a matter of time of getting it sorted out and the world is chaos right now. And I just need to get through tomorrow and keep on writing and somebody will get back to me eventually. And, um, and I was like, it's very I, stoic. Well, I, I came up with like the worst, the worst possible scenario would be that they were just like, you know what, never mind, we don't want this. But at the same time, under the circumstances of my contract, I wouldn't have to give any money back. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> free money. I say, like, if they, if they jump out, it's not, it's not my problem. It's, it's theirs. So it's not like I, even if I had to give the money back, it would have been okay for the, from the mm -hmm. advance. So, I could have survived it. So once you realize that you can handle the worst case scenario, it's not that scary. On that very happy note, <laughs> <laughs> as long as you can survive the worst of it. I feel like the thing I've, I've worked with two different, um, my original series is over at SNS. I was at Simon Pulse and then Simon Pulse closed this last year. So the third book in my series has Mikhail Dury on the back of it instead of Simon Pulse. And it's been interesting because things are mostly the same because my editor didn't leave. She, she was kept on and moved over to McEldery with me and I went with her and I got a similar panic to everybody knows. And so we have to tell you before Twitter tells you that P Pulse is closing and we're probably going to be okay, but I also don't know what's going on and I'm sorry, which I feel like is kind of the state of publishing and especially YA right now, because I feel like not only with the pandemic, but just like the the industry in general, sorry, I just breathed really loud into my microphone there. Um, it, it feels like YA is slimming down a whole lot right now, especially fantasy. And so, I mean, Pulse closed and Imprint closed and then the Rick Riordan stuff closed. It seems like I, we're probably going to see a little bit more of this. But the thing that I feel like is helpful is people who do have contracts, they do honor them, like you mentioned, even if it is a little scary trying to figure it out. I do have books at at Macmillan now too. And I can't imagine trying to like switch to a whole new team mm -hmm. because they do things totally differently. And so trying to take a series through with like more than one person, you seem to be handling it very, very well. So good job. 
Well, you know, sometimes you don't have a choice about what you have to handle. So (laughs) it's true. Did you have any things Uh, to add, Kristen or Erin or? uh, Well, I guess about publishing in general, they're going through a lot of changes. I feel like I'm actually kind of in the eye of the storm. So I really lucked out like where I was in my book process. I had already, I have my trilogy published and I have a new series starting and I'm just in the middle and I'm in 2020 was not a good time to release a book in general because uh, everyone was catching up on their reading list rather than buying new stuff and nobody was going to bookstores to buy them. So, um, so I felt like the delays are actually only going to help me and that, you know, thinking of it that way kind of helped too, but. I had a moment of that too, where I was like, I don't, I don't have a book coming out this year. This is okay. This yeah. is okay. <laughs> Kristen, it looked like you wanted to say something. So what it sounds like is that if you switch imprints, the main issue is if you also switch an editor, is that, is that the biggest fear or like what other ways can that really affect you as a writer? Well, I know within Macmillan, they have Fierce Reads, which was their teen groups, but that covered books from several different imprints within Macmillan. So it's the same publicity and marketing team. So mm-hmm. I, at least I have that. Um, your New editors are always going to be a little bit scary because they're going to do things differently and they're going to have um, different opinions on how things are going to, how things should go in your writing, but probably... Uh, Maybe it's the the bigger team and just the whole idea of I'm the new kid in town and everybody else is established and I'm just kind of like the redheaded stepchild that just arrived. The foundling on the doorstep um, that they had to take in. <laughs> it's like, do they really want me here? Um, they really do call them orphaned books, right? Yeah. Books that are orphaned from their editors. Yeah. But that's so funny and so sad. <laughs> I know. But, you know, but, the, but having the same publicity team, uh, I also helps because I know that they had already pitched everything to McMillan as a whole and they were the Fierce Reads team which covered FSG already was already on the case and it's not like you'd ever switch to a whole new company or anything like that anyway because you have a contract at a specific I mean Macmillan. I feel like we should do an episode about this, about how publishing companies are structured. Oh yeah. But Macmillan owns a bunch of different imprints, and so you moved from one of Macmillan's imprints to another imprint. So it's not like you're moving to a whole new publishing company where nobody knows you, like you mentioned. It's kind of like a department store closing, and you're moved to another in a different city where it's essentially the same, but not quite. All of the clerks are different, and they don't know your shoe size. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. If there's anything else you want to add, feel free to right now. Okay, awesome. And now we're going to move on to the second part of our podcast where we critique a first chapter from one of you listeners. If you would like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, check our website, which is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can also find our submission guidelines there. The submission we are critiquing today is about a girl named Emmeline who loses her best friend Cassie in a fire. Emmeline recreates Cassie as an imaginary friend, but Emmeline's creation might not be so imaginary after all. And Cameron and Aaliyah are going to join me for this critique, and we are letting Erin go because she spent so much time with us. Thanks, Erin. (laughs) So things we like. There were a lot of things I liked about this. The prologue opens with Emmeline running through a, quote, maze of frozen monsters. 
And I just thought that was an excellent starting point. It kind of gave me a sense of uh, what kinds of things would be possible in the story. And it was really interesting. I also worked... I really liked that too. Oh, go ahead. Kim. Yeah, I was just saying I also worked Frozen Monsters. It was just a great detail. I mean, monsters, but like Frozen Monsters. There's a story in, here. Like display cabinets seems to be the implication. Yeah. So, so many questions. I can't wait to have them answered. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I really like the premise of this story, actually, where we have a girl who lost her best friend and is so grief struck that she imagines her back into existence. It's very cool. I'll say, at least for me at this point, it's it's unclear to me which direction we're going in is the she's actually imaginary or we only think she's imaginary and she's going to turn out not to be. I don't know where it's going at this point, but either one is, I think, interesting and I'm here for it. Absolutely. Yeah. So the first chapter is titled The Last Laugh, and I was kind of approaching that like, oh, a character's going to get the last laugh over the villain or something. But then there's some great foreboding and foreshadowing where it says it was the last time in a long time that Emmeline would laugh after she's out with her friends. And that totally twisted the chapter's title in a new way. I liked kind of the shadows it, it shot over the rest of the story. So I liked that. At the beginning of the chapter, after the little prologue section, there's a section where they're talking about the Portlandia statue over the Portland building. building. And I like the back and forth where they're talking about what it is that she's um, bending over to grab. That actually made me go look up the statue and try and remember what it looks like. It was fun. So linked with that and the appreciation for the plot with the friend who's dead or may or may not be imaginary, um, I really like Emmeline's characterization the whole way through. It's very solid. Every Everything she's doing on the page is linked to how she's very much a constantly imagination muscle flexor, right? She watches people go by. She imagines stories about them. She sees a statue. She makes up stories about what's going on. She's just chilling at home. She's reading a book. It's you know she's she's very much in her head, and every everything she does on the pages is, is connected to that. And I like how that connects directly to the plot we're getting, where there's this question of, well, okay, is what's happening still just in her head? And anyway, it makes sense that this is the plot we're getting for this character. And mm -hmm. anyway, it's a real good pairing. I liked that too. One of the characterization moments I really liked is that Emmeline always buys the same two kinds of ice cream and that her friend Cassie tries everything. She tries everything down to the ketchup flavored ice cream, which I thought was cool character work. So if we are good to move on to things that might need a second look, um, what do we think in that arena? There were a few moments in the prologue where I felt like we were getting information maybe a little bit out of order. At one point, Emily grabs an artifact out of a case, and it's only after she's held it for a little bit that we find out the artifact is a sword. Um, and then another small instance is when her pursuers come onto the same floor she's on, and she meets their eyes, but we don't yet know if they're human or um, just who they are, but we're already getting a description of their eyes before then. Along with that... I mean, the pursuers thing, there's a, at least one instance of it being one pursuer and then a couple of it being multiple pursuers. But the prologue actually, to me, didn't feel like it matched the first chapter very well. Um, I'm guessing it's trying to make promises about what's to come. But I got a very YA, uh, forbidden romance slash betrayal, carnage promises. And then when we get to the first chapter, it's set in middle school and it's a very quiet internal story. Um, so it didn't quite match for me. What did you guys think about that? I don't know if I got those same vibes. I would say for me, the prologue still felt very middle grade, but I did have a lot of questions going to the first chapter just because it did feel so different. Um, just as a reader, I would really love some signposting, just, you know, giving hints about whether 
what came before happened um, in the future or in an alternate reality or just something to that effect of the narrator calling out, oh, this Emmeline doesn't know what the other Emmeline's doing or um, Emmeline remembered that strange dream she'd had or just something to help me place it. Because right now for me, the prologue, though, is really cool. It's kind of floating just off ambiguously to the side. I don't really know how it will connect to the plot, but I'd love to know. I think there's a, there's a general thread running throughout where there's there's a lot of the narrator withholding details that would be immediately obvious if we were actually watching the scene. And it seems the reason those details are being held back is to artificially create suspense, which it's not that you can't do that, but the amount that is used here is having a detrimental effect where we're losing grounding and context for what's going on for the sake of suspense, which then... You know, ironically, it then under undermines the suspense because we don't have the stakes tying us down. Absolutely. Um, a moment that comes to mind that specifically does that is she grabs this sword. She takes a chair and, like, tries to crash into the case to get to this sword. And after she gets it, it says she finally understood why. But it doesn't say she finally understood what or why, or anything to do with it. It's like a bunch of ungrounded statements where we're like, there's a lot of emotion happening here, and I do not have any context for it. Which is really frustrating as a reader because the character's obviously having a realization on the page and they're not sharing it with me. I don't know the before, I don't know what it means, and so it's really hard to care about it. And there are plenty of... We actually talked about this in the chapter last week where... Um, it's okay to have a prologue where we're like, we just want to find out how we got here. I don't understand it yet, but I want to. But we're not quite to that point because I feel like most of the details that are shared are things that I cannot connect to anything rather than being able to connect to them in some way. It's, so, it's one thing to have the prologue be disassociated with the main story that's going on, but the details inside the prologue are disassociated from the prologue. Yeah. So yeah. You, can, you can do some... I don't know why I'm using the word disassociated so much. You can do some disassociation, but I feel like at this at this point, this, there's there's it's happening on too many different levels. Mm -hmm. I think what it boils down to is knowing what is going on is significantly more compelling than the author saying, "Ooh, something is going on," because I mean it's it's a book and we know something's going on. So and just there's tell such a such a great foundation here. The bones of the story are really solid. You know, we've got a compelling main character. We've got a monster heist slash quest slash whatever thing that's going on. So super cool. Um, I think some of your comments may tie in with some comments I had on the first few sections of the first chapter. We get kind of these little vignettes of Emmeline's life where she's eating ice cream and then she's just doing other things. And though I, Cameron, I agree, like I loved the, the feeling of being inside her head, I would say for me, I don't know if those uh, time things were really necessary for me. They had fun character moments, but nothing happened in them to further the plot. So I, I'm not sure how essential they are. Prescriptive advice, maybe consider cutting or um, moving up the inciting incident in the first chapter, maybe a little bit closer to the beginning so that it ties in fast with the prologue. So I, I absolutely agree. Um, I'll stand by it. The characterization was amazing in those scenes, but the, the plot and pacing is almost non-existent in a few of them. So my advice would be to merge a few of them together so that you can get the plot threads that deal more primarily with, with, you know, things people want that they can't have and have those be going on at the same time as the characterization. 
Mm-hmm. Which actually, Cameron, and I, I blipped out for a second, so I don't know if Cameron already mentioned this, but he mentioned in the notes that he was wondering if the reason they mentioned specifically that Emmeline, Emmeline, Emmeline always pays for the ice cream. And he's like, oh, is that because she's a ghost? And I was like, oh, that's amazing. That would be so cool. But I mean, like you were saying, and I think this is Cameron's note that I'm stealing, knowing that... <laughs> It's so much cooler than being like, or like realizing it almost immediately after the fact, rather than like having to wait a really long time to realize that. Like, I I mean, it could just say something about them as people, like that Emmeline is the one who pays because of life situations or whatever else. And that's fine. But we don't actually have enough time with Cassie for that to be a thing. And so I really liked that interpretation. Anyway, so (laughs) we're being so prescriptive. I'm sorry. (laughs) I, another thought that I had was that, and I think we've, touched on this a little bit is that on the page we have this really distant third going on which is cool but we see Emmeline on the page register her friend's death and to go to her funeral and mourn for her like this is a really significant difficult thing for her and as a result she starts imagining her friend back into existence but we don't ever see the transition where she explains to herself what actually happened, if that makes sense. I don't know if you have to have that, but me as a reader, I had this disconnect where I was like, Emmeline knows her friend died. And then Emmeline is like, no, my friend is not dead, where she accepted it at first and then doesn't later. And I wasn't sure how to reconcile those two things. And Cameron looks like he has something to say about that. Well, I mean, so on the one hand, there's a part of me that really, really likes the idea that we don't see her make the decision that my friend isn't dead, because if she's got that level of repression going on, she's not going to consciously make the decision. It's just going to happen. Or at least she won't remember I, making the decision. But I think the pro- I would be totally on board with that if it happened from the beginning, but right. it doesn't. But so that, that's the problem is we see some yeah. things as they happened and other things as they would appear from in her head. And the fact that we have both on the page intercut with each other undermines both because the, nar- the narrator is not consistently unreliable in the same way. Yeah. Sometimes we get the real facts and sometimes we get Emmeline's facts. I think yeah. that that might be my biggest piece of of advice for this whole submission is to narrow in on exactly what you want the narrator to be and then try to make it as consistent throughout all the different vignettes as you can. Totally. Did we have any other big stuff we wanted to talk about? All right. We, there are other notes. So check out the, the submission on our website if you want to see the rest of them. And we really liked this. Obviously, there's a lot to really love in this story. And the concept is so cool. And I hope that your editing goes really well and that everything's awesome. That sounds like that song from the Lego movie. But as always, all of our um, feedback is subjective. Do what you want to with this book. We really loved reading it. Our next guest will be Kathy Cowley, the author of The Secret Life of Miss Mary Bennett and the novella Tatterhood and the Prince's Hand in the anthology Unspun, a collection of tattered fairy tales. If you would like a critique from Kathy, get us your work by May 13th. If you like what you've heard, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques, early episode access, and a writing group experience with Lit Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make Lit Service and patrons help us keep going. Thank you to all of you who have already become patrons and are keeping us on the air. Thanks to our assistant, Chelsea Mortensen, who does all our social media, and Craig Harris, who's on sound design. We couldn't do the podcast without them. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thanks for listening to Lit Service. We'll see you in two weeks.